This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, our last new show of the year, the 132nd of Polyoptics since our inception back in 2011. And it's a doozy. Two men who've joined us before, Mark Halpern and John Heilman, broadcasters, journalists, and authors. First of Game Change and now Double Down, Game Change 2012. If I may say so myself, if you're looking for that last-minute tome to plop in front of the Christmas tree next week, a perfect gift for your favorite political junkie or junkie-to-be, we'll wind back the clock to the most memorable moments of our last presidential campaign and look ahead to what Game Change 2016 might have in store. And then, if you heard our show a few weeks ago, the one I recorded from atop a glacier in Iceland, you'll remember my conversation with 19-year-old Parker Leoto, Yale sophomore and leader of the Willis Resilience Expedition. We were cold on that glacier day, really cold, but it was like a day at the beach to what Parker's been enduring over the last three weeks of his solo trek to the South Pole from the coast of Antarctica. I'll give you an update on how he's doing and how to track his final miles with the goal in sight. And for the course of the hour, I'll be joined by our occasional guest host of this program, Jeff Smith, former Missouri State Senator and Professor of Public Policy at the New School here in New York. Welcome back, Jeff, to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Josh. You went up to the 92nd Street Y to hear an interesting show a few weeks ago. I did. What I heard, was it? I heard Mark and uh, and John give their talk on uh, on Game Change 2012 on Double Down. They were great. They brought down the house with a few of their lines and... Uh, yeah, a little bit off color, but we're expecting some more of that here today. Well, look forward to uh, talking to Mark and John as he makes his way into the studio, beginning with Mark Halpern. Welcome back to the show, buddy. Great to be here with you too, August gentlemen. Thank you. We are glad to be August. Mark, before we get back into uh, Game Change 2012, a little bit of this sort of preliminary dancing toward Game Change 2016. Barbara Walters, your ex-colleague from ABC News, this week is out with her uh, most fascinating person of the last 20 years, and it's someone you know pretty well. Let's hear a clip of that interview. This year is the first time in decades that neither you nor your husband are in public office. Is an enormous relief? It is. It's a relief because I knew that I wanted to get off the high wire that I had been on for so long to spend time just doing things that give us a lot of joy, playing with our dogs, going to movies, just hanging out. Like normal people. Yes, that, that's a good description. Hillary Clinton like a normal person, Mark Halpern? Well, look, uh, you know, we write some about her in Double Down, but her husband's a bigger character because she was Secretary of State. And I still believe there's a possibility she's not going to run. I know everybody thinks it's a, it's a foregone conclusion. I think there's never been a cycle where one person so freezes, not just her party's potential candidates, but the other parties as well in some way. But I think she may decide, as Haley Barber did, as we write about in Double Down, she may decide if she runs, she's going to run to win. If she wins, she's going to run for re-election. At that point, she basically would spend the next 10 years doing nothing but this and not going to be playing very much with the dogs or going to very many movies or having a normal life. And I think there's a possibility she sort of stares at that prospect and decides maybe she'll take a pass. Maybe the odds of that aren't so great, but I don't think they're nothing. And, and perhaps she might think about a 78-year-old 
person who doesn't have that much more time to uh, enjoy her grandchildren and perhaps anoint a future female vice president, rather, a female president rather than be that herself, John Heilman. Possibly. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, she's had health issues and her husband's has health issues and there's a variety of things that could keep her um, deciding not to run. But I think, you know, Mark and I would both you both acknowledge we, we both, I think, are less certain than some people are who are 100 percent certain. But I wouldn't say that either of us would would if we had to bet today with a gun to our head that she isn't going to run. I mean, I think you know, she, every all this all the visible signs right now are that she's lining herself up to make this run. And um, I, I you know, still think the odds are strongly in favor that she's going to do it. Now, Bill, of course, was all over Double Down, but Hillary was sort of invisible. Uh, obviously, she can't be politicking while she's sex state, as you say, Mark. But my question is, what was she thinking about Bill's role? Was she excited for Bill to, you know, come back in and kind of steal the stage at the DNC? Or was that something that she would sort of rather have stayed behind the scenes? Well, you know, she did have that one. He did. We do quote her in this one moment where he talks about Mitt Romney's uh, business record being sterling. Uh, and she was not happy with that. You know, the end of game change, when she takes the secretary of state job, she says to President Obama, you know, Bill could be a problem. Like we both know that bringing me in is, is bringing in Bill. The fact is, President Clinton, during the the time President Obama was of his first term, he had a few times when he was off the reservation, but he was mostly on the reservation, even if sometimes he wasn't a big part of things. And my sense is that she's been very happy with not only that, but with the fact that he got to come back and do what he loves best, you know. He wasn't able to campaign the general election in 2000 because Gore didn't want him. 2004, Kerry wanted him, but he was sick. 2008, Obama didn't want him. Seeing him back doing what he loves best, barnstorming the country, crisscrossing multiple events a day in a general election, talking up his own record in the Democratic Party, I'm sure she was pretty happy as he was. And really articulating the rationale for the president's re-election much better than the president ever did. I mean, you know, you look at not just his speech in, uh, in the, at the convention in Charlotte, but uh, we write about an earlier event at Terry McAuliffe's house, now the governor of elect Virginia, did a big fundraiser and the two presidents appeared there. And President Obama saw President Clinton make a very comparable case to what he made in, in Charlotte. And so, and then of course did it during Sandy and in the, in the, in the last few days of the campaign. So I think, I think he made the case in a way that even President Obama would admit was pretty darn, pretty darn great. And a lot of people even close to both presidents would tell you, what President Clinton did was not matched by anybody else. Well, and you think about also the fact that, you know, Obama ran in 2008 largely as an antidote to Clintonism, right? He, his, his, the whole rationale for his his nomination, then the nomination fight, and then later on was, you know, we're going to get past the baby boom psychodrama of the Clintons, no more, none of that, right? And, and now in 2012, uh, Bill Clinton's emergence as, as, as the super surrogate was also part of uh, a rejuvenation of, of the whole theory of the case of Clintonism, right? Because you now had Barack Obama running around the country saying, I am the logical inheritor of Bill Clinton's policies, that I can bring back the Clinton prosperity. You know, it was good for the overall Clinton political project. It restored his place in the Democratic Party as, as kind of the, as the, the, the kind of king figure. And if, if she does run in 2016, um, having had that, having had President Obama kind of put his imprimatur on Clintonism and not be seen as anymore as an as, as an opponent of Clintonism is good for her in the long run, too. And another interesting line in your book uh, was, remember how in 2008, Obama's sort of big case was, I can be transformational in the way that Ronald Reagan was, which offended some people, in particular the Clintons. And then uh, you note his moment in 2012 when he looks at his advisors and says, hey, this is small ball. 
what am I really talking about here? Well, you got to give me some bigger stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest scenes in the book. It's the prologue of, of Double Down as well as we return to it towards the end of the book when on the eve of the second debate with Mitt Romney, Barack Obama says just that, which is, you guys, I'm not really running on anything. Part of why I'm having trouble in these debates and in preparing for these debates is because I don't have a big agenda the way he felt he did in 2008. There's no doubt that there's, as John alluded to, kind of a, an ideological or, or programmatic um, transformation during uh, the course of this campaign, uh, bringing the President Obama a greater appreciation, without a doubt, of the Clinton era. But also it's the personal relationship. And that's really what we try to do in the book as much as anything else, less about policy and programs and more about the fact that it is darn interesting to think about the evolution of the relationship between Barack Obama and Bill Clinton from the end of 2008 when their relationship was extraordinarily bad to that convention in Charlotte and, and, and election night when Barack Obama wins and the first call he makes after Mitt Romney calls to concede is to, is to Bill Clinton. Unimaginable to anyone who knew those two guys how far their relationship came over the course of the book. And, you know, you think about right after that, you know, after the after election night, you know, you've got Bill Clinton and Barack Obama out on the golf course before the end of the year. Uh, you've got Barack Obama on 60 Minutes in January singing Hillary Clinton's praises. You think about this year, um, you know, President Obama giving President Clinton the Medal of Freedom, um, inviting the Clintons out to Arlington for the commemoration of JFK's 50th anniversary of JFK's death. Um, an event he didn't have to invite them to, um, could have invited yeah. Joe, could have invited Joe Biden, did not. He brought the Clintons instead. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, there are two these two political families, you know, start, you know, end 2008. They're still, even though she's become Secretary of State, they're still warring families. They're still the Montagues and the Capulets, right? And by the end of 2012, they're kind of all conjoined in one big political family. There's, you know, they are the four most popular people in the Democratic Party: Michelle Obama, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton. Um, all kind of now kind of locking arms in a lot of ways. Um, it's a very powerful union um, for the moment, yeah. and it's a very powerful potential union for the future. I mentioned John Heilman and Mark Halpern at the top of the show that Game Change 2012 uh, is, is, arrives here in the bookstores as a perfect timing for an excellent holiday gift. So if I'm looking at the calendar of this publication versus the last one, you got it out faster. If I read between the lines, I'm seeing not I'm seeing, as usual, not a lot of quotation marks, but inside the heads of a lot of the players with maybe more granular detail than I think I remember from the first book. How did sources and methods and timing and process change from the first book to this one? Well, we wanted to get it out sooner, um, in part, so people could enjoy it over the holidays. Uh, <laughs> You know, some people criticize even coming out a year after the election. The book took us from election day to, to get it out a, a year. Some people criticize that. We got a, a pushback on that. We point out it took Doris Kearns Goodwin 100 years to get her <laughs> Roosevelt book done. So one year seems fine. The fact is that there's, a, there's a, um, a lot of similarities between the books, even though it's a different race. And full cooperation from all the campaigns, extensive uh, interviewing, 500 interviews for this book, long interviews. And we basically tried to do the same thing. You know, you you kind of got at it. We talked about granular detail and inside the heads of people. That's really what we're going for. It's so hard these days to explain to people what our presidential candidates and their spouses and would-be candidates, sort of what they're thinking, how they're feeling, how they're approaching the challenges they face. And we do a lot of interviews with the people at the highest levels of all these campaigns, in this case also in the White House, to try to tell that story, again, as much as possible from the point of view of these real human beings who are doing extraordinary things. Let's relive some of the... Um some of the fun moments uh, in sort of some 
uh, chronological order from Game Change 2012, we begin with the situation facing the incumbent president, the very beginning of, of when we thought he was going to run, and the uh, hectoring that he was getting from the birther movement and maybe from the birther-in-chief, Donald Trump. Let's hear a little bit how uh, President Obama pushed back on Mr. Trump at the White House Correspondents Association dinner. He's taken some flack lately, but no one is happier, no one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? What really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? It's a funny night, John Heilman, but the way you write it in Game Change 2012, it involves a man going back to his home in Chicago and literally rifling through the family files. Yeah, you know, he's back in Chicago at the beginning of April, a little bit before that clip and before the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He's back doing his first real re-election events, a series of fundraisers back in Chicago. And and Donald Trump has been taking up a huge amount of airspace, um, he's been getting a huge amount of attention with his birther charges. And, you know, the White House obviously is trying to brush those things off, but they've become a distraction um, from from governance. Um, there's a lot of Republicans who who know that that a, a large chunk of the Republican electorate believes that President Obama wasn't born in America. And and it's harder for them to do business with those people if they're if those people's constituents don't think that he's a legitimate president. So it's on President Obama's mind and it's bothering him. And he gets back to Chicago and he's, he's thinking about it and he makes a couple jokes about it that night. But they're kind of awkward, uncomfortable jokes. And he goes back to his house in Kenwood where he hasn't spent very many nights alone in the course of his presidency. Sometimes there with his family, but not very often alone. And he's there alone. And he goes upstairs and starts digging through these boxes of his late mother that he hasn't looked at since she died and finds this booklet, a commemorative booklet from the hospital in Hawaii where he was born. It's got, you know, the Hawaiian queen on one side and his his little baby finger, baby footprints on this other page. And he's a little confused about what it is and kind of takes it to his aides, kind of suggesting like, hey, maybe this is the, the document and comes back to Washington excited about the possibility that maybe he could use this document to put the matter to rest. His lawyer, Bob Bauer, says, well, that's not the long form birth certificate, but that pr- pr- begins a reconsideration of going to the officials in Hawaii and getting them to release the long-form birth certificate, which they do just within a few days after that. He puts that thing out, admonishes the press, admonishes Donald Trump, and then a couple days later, there's the White House Correspondents' Dinner where he's able to mock Trump in the way that uh, that little clip you played captured so well. So one of my favorite moments in Double Down is... You, you know, you're covering Donald Trump and you're covering kind of the circus of the Republican primary. And you write about, I think, Jeb Bush, Haley Barber and Mitch Daniels all sort of calling each other saying, hey, you do it. Hey, why don't you do it? Um, can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of that relationship among the three of them and kind of the foraging of the Republican Party for someone other than Mitt Romney and how close we were to having a nominee who wasn't on the playing field at the end of 2011? Well, there's, you know, two main reasons why Mitt Romney became the nominee. One is because the people who did run were so weak. And one was because amongst the people who would have been substantially stronger challengers to him chose not to run. You you listed a bunch of them, Chris Christie as well. Um, there were kind of three big periods where Romney was threatened by another person not on the playing field. One was early in the process in early 2011 when you saw people like Haley Barber and Mitch Daniels and, and Mike Huckabee all decide not to run. Then in the fall of 2011, a big push by some of the richest people in the country to get Chris Christie in the race, and he decides at the end not to run. And then we report for the first time in February of 2012, after Romney lost a few primaries and caucuses to Rick Santorum, 
uh, the people in the party, big people in the party, like Mitch Daniels, Haley Barber, Jeb Bush, um, John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, all said, you know, it looks like we got two possibilities here. We got Santorum as our nominee, which they all thought would be a disaster. Or we've got a very weak Mitt Romney who wins the nomination ugly and maybe not to the convention. And they tried at that late date to get a white knight into the race, someone who could come in, not win the nomination outright because there wasn't enough time to win enough delegates to win it, but to kind of force a brokered convention and try to keep Romney from being their standard bearer. If Romney loses Michigan, do we have a brokered convention, do you think? I think if Romney lost Michigan, there would have been a white knight candidate. I think there's a chance Romney would have dropped out if he'd lost Michigan. I mean, we report in the book that he at one point was, you know, really he, he recognized that. He thought there was a better than 50-50 chance after those three races that Santorum won uh, in February. He thought there was a better than 50-50 chance that Santorum would be the nominee at that point because Santorum was more, in his view, Mitt Romney's view, and in the view of a lot of people, Santorum was more in line with the Republican base than Romney was. And Romney was struggling to put away these really weak characters. You know, he had all the money in the world and was able to kind of uh, incinerate Newt Gingrich on two successive occasions. Now he's faced with Rick Santorum and all this momentum headed in Santorum's direction. And Romney's saying, you know, you know, you know, the polls have him in Michigan, where, where Romney's home state, where he was born. He's got him behind Santorum. And he's saying, you know, maybe I'll lose. If, I'm, if we're going to lose Michigan, maybe I shouldn't even compete in Michigan. And he, you know, really thought that if he lost Michigan, he would likely lose Ohio. And if he lost Michigan and Ohio, it wasn't clear what he would win after that. And so, you know, the, the idea that the Republican Party would have accepted Rick Santorum as its nominee seems pretty, pretty minimal and pretty unlikely. And so I think, like Mark said, I think, you know, he, you, you would have seen a situation where Romney could have lost Michigan, lost Ohio, and then thrown up his hands, and you would have had a total free-for-all in the Republican Party at that point over who was going to get in to run and to get some delegates in California and some of those very late states and then go all the way to the convention and, and have, a, have a, a floor fight over who was going to be the nominee. Mark, John, there are people who file papers for candidacy, and then there are people who stand next to the people who file papers for candidacy. And we started our conversation, uh, Mark, talking about Hillary Clinton, 2016, but in 2008 and 2012, there was Michelle Obama. And I want you to describe for our listeners the particular role that she played in campaign 2012. And I'll start with this clip of your standard local newscast in California, Fox 11, as the first lady comes in for a string of fundraisers. She also has another fundraiser on her plate today, a luncheon being held in her honor by Yolanda Cookie Parker, a uh, tech entrepreneur. She is also a member of Obama's fiscal committee, uh, finance committee rather. But yesterday she had a double header, two fundraisers. The first one at no doubt singer Gwen Stefani's home just north of Beverly Hills. About 400 people attended, including Nicole Richie and her husband Joel Madden and Allison Hannigan and uh, other celebrities that all brought their children. It was a very kid-heavy fundraiser yesterday. $2,500 per ticket to get in there with your family. And then she headed over to Warner Brothers CEO Barry Myers' home for yet another fundraiser. So uh, she is definitely collecting the cash for her husband's re-election campaign. You know, in July, uh, the Romney camp actually beat Obama in fundraising. So the Obamas are trying to uh, even the scales here this month with Michelle Obama, very popular first lady making the rounds here in the Southland, grabbing up some cash before she meets her husband in a battleground state, Iowa, right after this. We always have to do our page six homage here on Polyoptics, <laughs> all that name dropping. But you really lay out, guys, a lot of ground rules that Michelle Obama placed on her participation in this campaign. Well, look, in 2008, she was not that interested in her husband running, and she she was not an unalloyed positive she, until the, her convention speech 
in Denver, uh, she struggled at times to be a, a formidable political force. And she spent a lot of time raising her daughters and, and off the campaign trail. This time, she doesn't love living in the White House, but she reached the conclusion that her husband needed to be reelected, not just for the country, uh, but for his legacy and for the things they believed in. And she worked really hard. She, she demanded a lot of organization. She demands a very clear schedule. The staff is, I put too fine a point up, but they're afraid of her. They don't, they don't want to get on her wrong side. And so they presented her a pretty detailed schedule, and she agreed to do it. That report of those fundraisers was good in the sense that it showed you know, a snapshot of one, one, one series of events. But she did a ton of fundraisers. She was a more formidable fundraiser than Joe Biden and, and, and willing to go out and do all sorts of events, big events, small events, donor maintenance events. And she helped the president not just with fundraising and not just with um, her convention speech, which was a tour de force, but also with um, advice at the right times. For instance, again, in this critical moment after the first debate with Mitt Romney, where the president needs uh, uh, to figure out how to do better in the second debate, she stepped in and was quite clear with his aides and saying some things have to change, mostly on the logistical side. But she knew full well that the president was in danger of repeat bad performance, and she wanted to make sure she contributed to trying to head that off. You know, you noted that she was not an unalloyed positive in 2008. I guess the gaffe uh, that people remember the most was, for the first time in my life, I'm proud to be an American. Uh, there was also the 2012 gaffe about living in the White House and her feelings about that. Uh, you write a bit about that. Yeah, you know, she look, she 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 you know had she she had a lot of mixed feelings about it. You know, we we talk about in the book how she kind of bothered her that she, you know, would have to put on her makeup to go out and walk the dog behind the White House. And, you know, she felt as though a lot of the normalcy, the things that she's a very normal, on some levels, a very normal, normal woman, right? From a working class family on the south side of Chicago who, like, you know, was not was not dying to get to the White House. As Mark said, she didn't really particularly want her husband to run and had to be convinced that it was a good idea for him to do that. And she, you know, there are things about the White House she really enjoyed, and there are things about the White House she really didn't enjoy. And one of the things she really didn't enjoy and have any interest in was helping Democratic candidates. You know, in the, in 2010, when Rahm Emanuel and others wanted her to go out and campaign on behalf of Democrats, she was her attitude was, I don't have any interest in doing that. She, she is, for all of the disdain her husband has for Congress, she has more. And, and she was, you know, just not interested in doing that, but she was as Mark said, very interested in helping her husband. And the truth was, by the time you got to 2010, 2011, she was a much more popular figure than Barack Obama. She had gone from being a polarizing figure to being much more popular than her husband. And she was acutely aware of that and knew that she had all this political capital. She'd gone from being polarizing to being unifying. And she didn't want to waste her political capital on a bunch of congressmen. She wanted to spend that capital when it mattered for her guy. And as Mark also said, you know, by the end, she did a ton for him. And, and she was, you know, she, she got to do what she wanted to do, which was, you know, use that political strength that she had on behalf of the only thing she really cares about, which is, which is Barack Obama. There's this amazing scene in which you show the, the real tension between herself, Valerie Jarrett, and Robert Gibbs uh, leads pro- perhaps eventually to Gibbs's eventual departure from the White House and the role that he would eventually play in the 2012 campaign. And then let's talk, if we can, about this chapter, Obama's List, and start with the reference to the film, I think, that that David Pluff made, uh, and that is Warren Beatty and Bullworth. We all came down here, Bush, Clinton, Wilson, all of us, we got our pictures taken, told you what you wanted to hear, and we we pretty much forgot about it. (laughs) Did he just say what I think he said? Let's see where he's going with this. We can't get health insurance, 
buy insurance, life insurance. Why haven't you come out for Senate Bill 2720? Well, because you, you haven't really contributed any money to my campaign, have you? You got any idea how much these insurance companies come up with? They pretty much depend on me to get a bill like that and bottle it up in my committee during an election. And in that way, we can kill it when you're not looking. So, guys, Barack Obama kind of wants to have a Bullworth moment and tell tell it like it really is, but sort of constrained by the staff and some of these meetings in the Roosevelt Room. Well, and by the need to get reelected and, and you know, the, to, to do a Bullworth or to go Bullworth is now, you know, as that clip illustrated, to kind of say the truth in a way that's unimaginable at the, that level of politics because of the political consequences. The president had a list of things he brought to a political meeting in the fall of 2011. He was in a politically po- perilous position at that point. His approval rating was down. He was seen as weak in his dealings with Congress by people in both parties. And he wanted, he, he expressed a, in this list of, of kind of regrets as well as hopes of things that he wished he had done more on in his first term up until that point. Things like climate change, things like gay rights, things like dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian situation, things like poverty. All these issues are, are, are issues where the president's heart seems to be more to the left particularly climate change, which had such, when he, when he did try to do something on it early in his first term, uh, his party suffered huge political consequences. And so as he started to talk about some of these issues, Robert Gibbs said, you know, I don't see a Bullworth scenario here, which is to say, if you ran on those issues from a progressive point of view, there's no electoral college victory. You have to hold your tongue on those things, continue to hold your tongue on those things. And if you get reelected, maybe you can go back to them. Still the president's hope, he talked about some of them as an inaugural address, but it is quite a striking moment, both as a sort of human scene as well as historically, to think that Barack Obama is telling his aides with a year to go before Election Day, this is what I really care about. And they're basically saying to him, as he well knows, you can't run on those things and expect to win. It was very interesting that you all seem to capture something that I really hadn't read uh, in any other work, even in like David Remnick's biography. Um, you capture these moments of self-doubt on behalf of the president. The one that I think Josh just alluded to when he's there saying, you know, maybe I should just go out and say what I really think. And then, of course, the intense self-doubt in the um, run-up to the second debate. Can you describe that? It's a very compelling scene that opens the book. Well, you know, you've got a situation after um, after the Denver debate, right, where President Obama has performed very poorly in Denver. We, we devote a chapter to, to kind of explaining what went wrong in Denver and, and that, you know, his team's strategy, they were worried about him being too harsh towards Mitt Romney and sacrificing his likability. Um, they're worried about him being too programmatic and too wonky at the same time. And so they're trying to get him into the right middle ground. He's never comfortable with the strategy, doesn't do well in Denver. But coming out of Denver, everybody recognized that the second debate would therefore be really important. Um, the president didn't lose much vote share coming out of Denver. Um, the, the race tightened a little bit because Republican independent Republican leading independents kind of came home to Mitt Romney after the 47 percent and after his very good performance in Denver. But President Obama didn't lose much of his vote share, but his team recognized that if he had a bad second debate, that could really be a problem. And so there was a lot of pressure on him to do well in the second debate. And he and he seemed to be getting better. And then, as we report in the book, um, two nights before the second debate here in New York City at Hofstra University, he had a hor- horrendous debate performance in a practice session with John Kerry, worse than Denver, worse than anything they'd seen. And it caused a moment of genuine panic among everybody uh, on his staff. They thought if he performed that way again 48 hours later, he might lose the election. David Plouffe said that to his uh, to his colleagues, and they all had agreed. So they had to sit him down. 36 hours out the morning before they would head to New York City and say, have kind of an intervention with them, which is what they called it, and say, look, you know, you need 
something has to change here or we're in real trouble. And you have the president then uncorking like an hour long, basically a monologue talking about all of his doubts about whether he could actually do this thing at the level that he needed to do it. And he says, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I'm, my head's wired the way that this event requires uh, and talks about his uncomfortable, his discomfort with the with the, with the format, with uh, with the, the thing we talked about earlier, with the, the paucity of his second term agenda, all of these kind of things, the most comp- confident, self-possessed guy we've had in our politics in a very long time, expressing this fundamental kind of existential doubt. And then we, as we report in the book, how his team had to kind of carry him across the psychic chasm over the course of the next 36 hours, give him a new kind of debate prep, kind of urge him on. Uh, and get him to the place where he was able to go out in at Hofstra and do what he had to do. Mark Halpern, I'm not sure that anyone has chronicled American presidential elections as closely as you have for the last two decades. If Barack Obama, so just give me your gut answer here. If Barack Obama performs in the second debate exactly as he had in the first, does he lose that election? I, I think he's in, a, as David Pluff thought at the moment, he's in a position to lose. doesn't necessarily because I think he could have fought back and he had the third debate, which ended up being a non-event, would have been a much bigger event had he lost the first two. So I don't know that he would have lost, but he certainly could have. It certainly, almost certainly would have been much closer and would have caused a lot of panic uh, amongst Democrats, dwarfing the panic they had after the first one, which was considerable. Let's talk about some of the other early management issues that this West Wing faced in the first term and that even continue in some ways to the second term. We'll begin with uh, here's President Obama uh, invites President Clinton down to uh, a meeting in the West Wing and then goes out to the briefing room and makes a few remarks, but then passes the microphone. Let's hear how John Stewart analyzed that. But there was one mistake in particular that stands out. It happened last Friday at 424 in the afternoon in the White House press briefing room. I just had a uh, terrific meeting uh, with uh, the former president, uh, President Bill Clinton. I'm going to let him uh, speak very briefly. Uh, And then uh, I've actually got to go over and uh, do some, just one more Christmas party. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Uh, First of all, I feel awkward being here, and now you're going to leave me all by myself. (laughs) You're going to leave that guy? (laughs) The Michael Jordan of press briefings in charge? while you go to a Christmas party. (laughs) You know, Mr. President, that's the kind of cool confidence that borders on delusional. John and Mark, that's not Major Garrett and Chuck Todd laughing in the briefing room. That's uh, John Stewart's audience. But but this relation evolving relationship with the Clintons that we talked about earlier, what did they what did the West Wing think after Clinton took to the podium for what President Obama said would be a brief few minutes and then turned into a long Friday afternoon soliloquy? Well, they thought it was great. And, you know, they were amazed, as was the president, that he was criticized about it for it. You know, people had been telling Barack Obama for the last, you know, as he was having trouble into at the end of 2010, be more like Bill Clinton, you know. And so here he has a meeting with Bill Clinton. It was the first time they sat down together in the Oval Office in December of 2010. And he brings Bill Clinton out. And now he's being criticized for relying too much on Bill Clinton. And Barack Obama kind of thought, well, that's just kind of typical Washington. You know, tell me to be more like Clinton. So now I rely on Clinton. You tell me I've, I'm relying too much on him. But, you know, what they needed from Bill Clinton at that point, that was right at the moment when there was a big budget deal that was being uh, that was being brokered at that point. And there was a liberal insurrection about the fact that Barack Obama was agreeing not to do what he said he would do, which was to let the Bush tax cuts expire at the end of 2010. And a lot of the left was all upset about that. Bill Clinton thought that was nuts. And he went out and made the case to that day in the briefing room that Barack Obama was right. And that effectively quelled 
the liberal insurrection that was happening on the Hill. So when the, from the standpoint of practical politics, forget about the optics, it had the effect that they wanted it to have, which was a calm down liberal members of Congress about the about the, 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 the efficacy and the and the solidity of that deal. And and Mark, one of the it seems very effusive sources for Double Down uh, and Game Change 2012 is the former White House Chief of Staff, Bill Daly. Uh, of course, using your ground rules, you don't say exactly who talked to you or who told you what. But again, we get seem to get into the head of the former White House Chief of Staff, get some of the granular details of things that were going through his head. I want to hear a little bit of President Obama the day that uh, Bill Daly uh, bid adieu to the White House and tell us how his one-year uh, in his corner of the West Wing worked for the White House. Last week, my chief of staff, Bill Daly, uh, informed me that after spending time reflecting with his family over the holidays, he decided it was time to leave Washington and return to our beloved hometown of Chicago. Uh, obviously, this was not easy news to hear, uh, and I didn't accept Bill's decision right away. Uh, in fact, I asked him to take a couple of days to make sure that uh, he was sure about this, uh, but in the end, the pull of the hometown we both love, uh, a city that's been synonymous with the Daly family for generations, uh, was too great. Uh, Bill told me that he wanted to spend more time with his family, uh, especially his grandchildren, and he felt it was the right decision. Sounds like putting lipstick on a pig. Well, the Bill Daly experiment didn't work out, um, to say the least. Thank you for speculating about who our sources were. We never discuss it because all our interviews are done on Deep Background. But Bill Daly was a guy brought in to try to break up some of the insularity of the Obama operation, a guy brought in to try to improve relations with Congress and particularly Republicans, a guy brought in to improve relationships with the business community. And in every respect, he was an abject failure. Now, Part of that was perhaps because he didn't do the job the right way. A big part of it, by all the accounts we were given, was they, people around the president, David Pluff, uh, Pete Rouse, Valerie Jarrett, um, were all very big forces in the White House. Bill Daley was not given the ability to sort of move out people who he thought might be a problem. And there were, I won't say there were four chiefs of staff, but there were four pretty powerful people there, and Bill Daley never got the job done. And it hurt the White House during that period. It was a critical year. Uh, that the year uh, the president had a lot of political problems in 2011 that made the election a much dicier proposition than it might have been had they been more successful. You know, Daley's fear when he came in um, that he you know shared with some of his friends was that you know the very kind of um, vivid metaphor. He said, you know, I fear that the, that this is a wedding cake that's already been baked, and I'm a little the little plastic groom being put on top of the wedding cake. And that's sort of how it turned out. How he felt by the end of the first year that he was that that he was never really given the authority of a real chief of staff, uh, and that the the insularity that he was supposed to come in to help break up was turned out to be just resistant to any kind of outside force. Uh, and so he left. Um, no, no one, I would say, was happy with how that year went. There was no one who thought that that it ended up being a good idea. President Obama realized it was a failure. Bill Daley realized it was a failure. And, and so did certainly all the people around President Obama who thought that it was a bad idea to bring him in in the first place. So let's talk a little bit more about the Republican primary. We see you all on Morning Joe a lot. And if there was one candidate who I think embodies the Morning Joe spirit, it was John Huntsman, sort of a favorite of, of, of that audience. Now, John Huntsman, though, in your book, it comes across a little bit differently than I think he did to the electorate. Can one of you go into that? Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what was going on with Huntsman behind the scenes? Well, he was a guy who has been a conservative Republican governor of Utah, left to be President Obama's ambassador to China, and then came back to compete in a Republican primaries. He wasn't very well known. 
he did have an extraordinary run of positive press coverage, including on Morning Joe, because early on it appeared he was the kind of establishment candidate with good political touch uh, and an appeal to uh, voting coalitions, Hispanics and young people in particular, that Republicans were having trouble with. Uh, it also appeared to the people who were organizing his campaign, as well as to a lot of the press, that he would be able to use his family's vast wealth to be a self-funding candidate. That would be a great equalizer against Mitt Romney, who who had his money of his own, but also the ability to raise money. As it turned out, Huntsman was not willing to put and able to put big money into his campaign. His billionaire father was not able or willing to put money into the campaign. And he turned out to be a much weaker candidate, much uh, more troubled by uh, how to navigate the complexities of today's Republican Party than uh, anyone had been led to believe. Mark Halpern, author of Double Down, Game Change 2012. I know you have another engagement. Thanks so much for joining us. After the break, we'll continue talking about the book with John Heilman. This is the only channel that takes you inside Washington, D.C. My message is it's just not realistic. We're serious about growing our economy. Our economy is clear of the president's is policy. Growing again. Not helping the economy. The economy. Bureaucracy. Monetary policy. Jobs. We'll be able to reduce our deficit. Fighting over power. It's starting to make a lot more sense. This is POTUS. Unscripted with Chuck Todd. I'm Chuck Todd. Coming up this weekend, I'm going to talk with Notre Dame head football coach Brian Kelly. Not all about football, but about his first job, which was in politics. Also, a conversation with Johnny Carson's lawyer, Henry Bushkin, on his new tell-all book. Plus, Jonathan Martin from the New York Times and Chris Elizabeth from the Washington Post. We'll talk about a little pop culture and entertainment. Unscripted with Chuck Todd. Saturdays at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. East. And Sundays at 1 and 9 p.m. East on Sirius XM's POTUS. So, John Heilman, another problem that seems to be woven throughout Game Change 2012 is basically the way Mitt Romney is a candidate and the way he deals with the press and reporters. And you have this incredible vignette of him actually writing an op-ed for the New York Times uh, about the auto bailout. And you bring in this, my former colleague from the White House, David Shipley, who was running the editorial page of the New York Times, and how Mitt can write all that he wants for the body of the of the piece itself, but David and the op-ed folks get to write the headlines, basically. Yeah, cool. and let's hear a little bit about how Mitt reacted to this op-ed that he wrote called Let Detroit Go Bankrupt. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I said. My, my, the headline you read, which is said, Let Detroit Go Bankrupt, points out that, that those companies needed to go through bankruptcy to shed those costs. And, uh, and, and uh, the federal government put in, I think, $17 billion into those companies before they finally recognized, yeah, they need to go bankrupt, to go through that process so that they're able to get rid of their excess costs. Governor Romney and Boston were not happy with Shipley, were they? They were not. And, you know, the, the, it's kind of an amazing, the, the Let Detroit Go Bankrupt story is an incredible story because, you know, it's, it's, it's Romney writing this op-ed not that long after Election Day 2008. So he's, you know, he had, had lost, he'd, he'd suffered a, a pretty humiliating series of defeats in the, in the Republican nomination fight in 2008. He had you know, kind of disappeared um, more or less from the radar, but had campaigned pretty hard for John McCain over the course of 2008. Now it's right after Election Day, and the potential of a big auto bailout is on the table. Barack Obama's just won the presidency, and he decides, you know, in almost what, again, you mentioned Bullworth before, what some of the people around him thought was a Bullworth moment. He was going to write this op-ed, which of what he thought, you know, he had this great connection to the auto industry. His father, of course, had been uh, chairman of one of the big auto companies. So he writes this op-ed. And, you know, this is the rule. This is how the New York Times and a lot of newspapers work. You don't get to control your own headline. Um, but he wrote this thing. And it was a very carefully written 
uh, op-ed, and they put this headline on it, which David Shipley, who you mentioned, others in the New York Times, none of them thought it was controversial. I mean, he was basically saying he wanted to structure bankruptcy and manage bankruptcy, but a bankruptcy, and they thought Let Detroit Go Bankrupt captured that pretty well. Governor Romney was very upset about that the next day and was very angry with his press secretary, uh, with Eric Fernstrom, for not checking the, the headline. And he knew the headline would haunt him from that moment forward. He said to a bunch of his aides, this could kill me, guys. And it turned out, as you went, as you go forward in the story, um, through 2011 into 2012, it does kind of kill him. I mean, he gets hammered for it. Not First, he gets hammered for it in the Republican primary in Michigan. And then, of course, he gets hammered by it constantly by the Obama people, as the auto bailout turned out to work out pretty well. Romney had a good sense that that headline would kill him, but he didn't have enough sense not to repeat the headline on television, which he did. That clip that you played was him the morning after he announced for president's for the announced his his candidacy in June of 2011. He gets on the air with a with a reporter and then repeats the headline. And the video of him repeating the headline was as damaging as the headline itself or the fact that it ever appeared in the New York Times because it appeared in thousands of Obama ads going forward. So as much as Romney knew that he had a problem with the headline. He didn't have enough discipline not to say it on the air. And that uh, points to one of the candidate weaknesses that that was uh, certainly bedeviled him throughout his run. And it points to polyoptics, too. And we've talked about some of the aides around uh, President Obama in the uh, in the Roosevelt Room. We've talked about Eric Fernstrom, who took the flack for that moment from uh, Governor Romney. But there's also people like Spencer Zwick, Ron Kaufman, and Stuart Stevens. And I want to talk about the inter- about that gang as they h- handled and managed their candidate. Hear a little bit of Stuart Stevens in conversation with John Carl on this week. This quote caught my eye. Romney's senior strategist, Stuart Stevens, may well be remembered by historians as the last guy to run a presidential campaign who never tweeted. Believe me, if if I had tweeted in this campaign, this whole discussion we've been having about the Second Amendment would probably be replaced with one about the First Amendment and whether or not it should actually apply to tweeting. Um, Listen, I I, I don't think that... It, it would be a great mistake if we thought that technology in itself is going to save the Republican Party. Technology is something, to a large degree, you can go out and purchase. And if we think that there's an off-the-shelf solution that you can go out and purchase for the Republican Party, it's wrong. You know, we've had a lot of chance now since the, the campaign to spend time with the Demo- uh, Dem- Obama folks. And sometimes uh, they have better technology. In some cases, we have better technology. We don't have a 140-character problem in the Republican Party. We have a larger problem that we have to look at and be patient about it. And trying to think that there's one solution like this, I, I just don't think it's Are we ever going to get you on Twitter, though? Um, we can discuss that. That's Stuart Stevens. John, uh, John Heilman, you're an inveterate tweeter. But this gang around Mitt Romney and whether they were they had the right stuff to make this candidate a winning candidate in 2012, let's run through the roster and tell us what you found in your reporting. Well, I think, you know, look, the, 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 the Romney campaign, you know, Stuart Stevens was a, is a very talented guy. He's on Twitter now, too, and, and tweeting quite, quite uh, actively, um, and a, a super talented guy um, who had really earned the trust of Governor Romney, had been not a central figure in 2008, but had, had over the period of time from 2008 to 2012, had become closer and closer to Romney, ended up with an extraordinary amount of authority in the campaign, and, and I think raised eyebrows among a lot of Republicans as well 
as Democrats being the chief strategist for the campaign, being also the chief ad maker for the campaign, and then behind the scenes also being the chief speechwriter for the campaign. That's a lot of authority and responsibility for a presidential campaign, especially once you get to the general election. Trying to do all those things at once. I mean, people like Karl Rove kind of cocked an eyebrow. Karl Rove was a fan of Stuart Stevens. Saw it. You know, the, you can't be trying to do all those things at once. And, and it didn't seem to work out that well because there were moments in the book where you write about Mitt Romney literally writing his own speech on the way to events. The speechwriting thing was a was a huge problem for Romney um, throughout the campaign, and and it and, and you can't. You, it's easy to blame Stewart, um, but the truth is that Romney had Romney really had Romney thought of himself as a writer. And he really had a problem with uh, the words in a lot of his speeches. He felt like he and Stewart had a mind meld, and so he became very dependent on Stewart to write speeches. So they tried other speechwriters. Speechwriters would try to do drafts. Romney would look at them, didn't like them, and always ended up going back to Stewart. Um, I think Stewart would have would like to have handed off some of that responsibility, but Romney sort of wouldn't let him hand off responsibility. But it ended up being a codependent and and chaotic uh, relationship because big speeches that Romney was going to give, whether it was the convention speech, uh, the speech that he gave at the Detroit Economic Club during the Michigan primary, others. Um, always ended up being done at the very last minute. Stewart had so much on his plate that he and Romney were often crashing these speeches up to the very, very last minute. And again, it's not the, the kind of the right way to get big set piece speeches done. Um, you see Governor Romney, you remember when he gave his speech at, the, at CPAC, where he referred to himself as severely conservative. Sure. That was not that was not in the speech. And part of the reason why it was such that why he was able to blurt that out was because literally he was he never did a full run through of the speech until literally about five minutes before the speech. He was finally seeing the final draft of the speech just before he got on stage. He wasn't comfortable with the text. And so when you're not comfortable with the text, you tend to ad lib. And in Romney's case, ad lib was bad. Ad lib <laughs> ad the, Mitt Romney, not an ad libber, not the not what you want him to be doing. It was such a rich, rich moment. We just have to hear it, Catherine. And I fought against long odds in a deep blue state, but I was a severely conservative Republican governor. It's so good to have a, lar- a large group of severely conservative governors out there. Yes, I'll tell you, though, you know, when he said that thing, um, his uh, Peter Flaherty, who was his kind of the, the main outreach person on the Romney campaign to the, to the hardcore conservative flank of the party, he was sitting in the front row and he turned and looked at Lan He Chen, the policy director, and mouthed the words with a question mark, like severely conservative. That's that's not that's not going to play well. And um, and it didn't. And there were a lot of people like Rush Limbaugh who jumped right on that immediately thereafter and said, I've never heard that construction before. What an odd thing for this guy to say. It just came out sounding forced and called, you know, the, the question Romney constantly confronted um, on the right was whether he was genuinely one of them. By using that construction, it sort of highlighted the fact that he really wasn't one of them and ended up being totally counterproductive to the purposes he was hoping to achieve at that at that CPAC. I want to go back very briefly to an earlier clip in which Steve, uh, in which Stu Stevens said that the Republican Party didn't have a technology problem, but, you know, and they couldn't solve their problem in 140 characters. Peter Hamby, who wrote, I thought, a fantastic review of of Double Down, also wrote a piece, uh, a Harvard study about Twitter yeah. and Twitter's impact on the 2012 elections. He suggested that, you know, the Romney campaign and the Republican Party more broadly just didn't really get the new medium and therefore had really disadvantaged themselves more broadly. I think you saw it on election day with the catastrophic failure of Orca, their get out the vote um, mechanism. Uh, so can you talk about that a little bit? And going forward, do you feel like the Republican Party has spent 2013 rebuilding their technological infrastructure? Well, I think Stewart is right. And I think Peter Hamby is right. I think they're both right. I mean, it's true that there's not a, a there, the, the, the problems that Repu- the Republican Party 
and that Mitt Romney had that were the problems that, that ultimately made it very hard for him to win the election and ultimately caused him to, to fail, you know, were things like, you know, you can't really win a national election if you're getting 25 percent of the Hispanic vote, for instance. Um, if you if you're if the rising parts of the American electorate, uh, you perform as poorly with as Mitt Romney did and as the Republican Party continues to, those are those are the things that cause you to lose an election, not the failed mastery of Twitter. Um, so the, the Stewart's right in the sense that there's no easy technological fix for the big structural problems that afflict the Republican Party. At the same time, there's no doubt that the Democrat in this campaign, that the Obama campaign was more uh, data savvy. And I don't mean just in terms of using Twitter, but in terms of using data analytics to be able to figure out where the votes were and how to how to reach those voters, how to persuade those voters and how to turn those voters out at the polls. That That is not surprising in the sense that, you know, this is one of the great advantages of incumbency. You know, you have four years. You have no challenge. You're not fighting a nomination uh, challenge. Barack Obama, lucky in that respect, didn't have anybody who fought him. Um, you've got four years, a billion dollars, and a bunch of really smart people who can sit and get heavy with the technology, get heavy with all the mechanics of how you're going to fight this race, while a guy like Mitt Romney and all the other Republicans are out there first having to win the nomination, fight those battles day after day after day, and then look up in April or May and try to reconstitute yourself as a general election operation. The, in the Just like George W. Bush and the Republicans, Republican Party were miles ahead of the Republicans, ahead of the Democrats in 2004 because they had the benefits of incumbency and time and money. The Democratic Party was miles ahead of the Republican Party in those regards in 2012. I think Republicans have not done that much in 2013 to remedy themselves, but I do think that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party in an open race in 2016 will start with a much more level footing heading into that race. Democrats have a head start, but you remember even after 2004, and the Bush administration's dominance of the mechanics of getting reelected. By 2008, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were well ahead of the McCain campaign. So you can imagine uh, a tech-savvy Republican campaign uh, outpacing a Democratic candidacy, especially, for instance, if Hillary Clinton decides not to run. And suddenly there's a scramble among all these Democrats who are going to try to run in her, in her place. You could easily imagine a Republican who was more uh, tech-savvy and more mechanically advanced than the Democrats by the time we get to 2016, especially, as I say, if Hillary doesn't, doesn't decide to go. And then John Heilman author of Game Change 2012, for all the technology and for all the billions of dollars spent, sometimes it's just a a colossal screw-up that can mitigate all the benefits that you might have been building to that point. And so while there was a closed-door fundraiser for Governor Mitt Romney in Florida early in 2012, it's not until late in the fall that we begin to hear uh, and actually see this video that becomes so much the topic of conversation in the closing stages of the campaign. There are 47% of the people who will vote for the president no matter what. All right, there are 47% who are with him, who are dependent upon government, who believe that, that they are victims, who believe that government has a responsibility to care for them, who believe that they are entitled to health care, to food, to housing, to you name it. But that's, that's an entitlement, and government should give it to them. And they will vote for this president no matter what. And, and, I mean, the president starts off with 48, 49, 48. He starts off with a huge number. Uh, these are people who pay no income tax. 47% of Americans pay no income tax. So our message of low taxes doesn't connect. And he'll be out there talking about tax cuts for the rich. I mean, that's what they sell every, every four years. So, John Heilman, how does Boston react to this video when it comes out? People like Bob White and the SWAT team and rapid response in dealing with this catastrophe of a leaked video. Well, you know, Governor Romney was in California when the when the video uh, came out. 
um, headed to a fundraiser um, in Orange County, and he spent the better part of a long car ride from L.A. to Orange County discussing with his team what they should do about it. Um, you know, there was a uh, you know, it was obviously a crisis situation. Most of the people on his team recognized that this was not like your ordinary flap of the day. This was conceivably a really big problem. And, and the reason they could see that was that, you know, they had lived through the summer in which the Obama campaign had spent an extraordinary amount of money trying to paint Romney as an out of touch plutocrat who didn't care about the vast majority of Americans. And this in Romney's own words, and not just in his own words on audio, but with video and with all of the enticing qualities of secret fundraising video. Here's Mitt Romney talking to other plutocrats, uh, ostensibly not knowing that he's being captured in a surreptitious way with a video that can go viral in a way that audio just will not and will get played endlessly on cable TV. They recognize this is going to be a huge problem, but th- but their, their how to respond to it was a whole different thing. And one of the main things that they had to confront was the fact that they had no idea how many other videos there might be out there like this. Romney and his people knew that he had said things like this conceivably dozens of times at other places. And this was a particularly badly phrased version of it. But if you apologized for it, and then the next day there was another video, and then the next day there was another video after that, the apology could be the worst strategy in the world. And so they were sort of caught betwixt and between, not knowing exactly what the full context was, and also not knowing what other pieces of video or audio might come out. And they ended up taking the strategy, which the Obama campaign assumed they would, the Obama campaign thought they would just apologize straight ahead. And uh, Romney, for that reason, and also a whole other uh, kettle of fish, the fact that Romney had written this book called No Apology, called no Apology <laughs> which constantly caught Romney. He was constantly saying, how can I apologize for X, Y, or Z? I'm the guy who wrote a book called No Apology. So the, when the Obama campaign saw it, they thought he would apologize and try to put it to rest. But for the reasons I just said, they decided they couldn't do that. And that was a moment where uh, David Plouffe, who was with Barack Obama at that time, showing him the video on his iPhone, uh, when they didn't apologize, that's when the Obama campaign said, well, we're off to, we're off to the races here um, because he hasn't apologized. He's, not, he's actually kind of digging in his heels on this thing. And we can and beat him like uh, beat him like a drum over this over the coming weeks. So in every presidential campaign, there's always like an image or, or two that really breaks out in, into pop culture. In 1988, of course, as as Josh King wrote about in Political Magazine a couple weeks ago, it was Dukakis and the Tank. In 92, there's a few of them, but it's Bill and Hillary Clinton, you know, giving the uh, sort of apology uh, about about their marriage and talking about the pain he had caused. In 96, Bob Dole falls off the stage. In 2000, I was there at that. You event. were there for that. Yeah, That's yeah. great. Chico, was, California. Chico, California, baby. One of my favorite campaign moments. Not not because I wish Senator Dole any harm, but it was pretty. Sure. Um, it was pretty incredible. Sure. In uh, you know, in 2000, Al Gore like pushes up on George Bush during the right. debate. In right. 2004, there's the windsurfing. You know, there's always something. Yeah. The moment in the 2012 campaign that I think really cut through the clutter for a lot of people. Uh, I remember my dad actually asking me. Why in the heck did they let Clint Eastwood get out there with that chair? Why don't we hear a little clip from that? So, Mr. President, how do you uh, how do you handle uh, how do you handle promises that you made when you were running for election, and how do you handle uh, how do you handle it? I mean, what do you say to people? Do you uh, do you just uh, you know? I know people uh, people were wondering. You don't, you don't have it, okay. Oh, you, what do you mean, shut up? I, and I know in, in the, uh, I know you were against uh, the war in Iraq, and that, that's okay, uh, but you thought the war in Afghanistan was, was uh, okay. You know, I mean, you thought that was something that was worth doing. Pretty awkward, huh? 
Uh, very awkward. Um, very unexpected by all parties concerned. Um, you know, there's there's something about Hollywood stars. You know, they are they have a mesmeric quality to them, and they cause a lot of people to take leave of their senses. You know, in this case, you know, the reason Clint Eastwood was there in the first place was because Mitt Romney was a little starstruck. He had had a dinner with Clint Eastwood about a month before the Republican convention in Carmel, California, at Clint Eastwood's golf club. And had been sort of like, you know, gobsmacked by how great Clint Eastwood was. And his attitude was, you know, Republicans don't have very many Hollywood stars. You know, the Democrats got George Clooney and all these people. We need our own Hollywood star. So let's get Clint Eastwood to come and speak if we can. That was Romney to his campaign. They thought, well, okay, let's see if we can, if we can get him out there. Uh, Eastwood had done a couple of fundraisers for Romney at which he'd performed at least by reputation um, that people had heard, had seen remarks uh, versions of these remarks he'd made, and people thought, well, that's not so bad. Let's, you know, he's pretty good. Let's get him to do that. The problem was that Eastwood, you know, had no interest in being scripted and was not about to uh, allow himself to be scripted. He didn't, he didn't know what he wanted to say, but he knew he wanted to say something interesting. And by the time he got to Tampa, you had the Republican uh, team, Romney's team, led by Rush Schrieffer, Stuart Stevens's partner, kind of trying to get Eastwood to agree, you'll, you'll just say what you said at the fundraisers. And Eastwood is just very taciturn and kind of nodding and saying, yep, you know, I'll tell you, know, but I don't want notes and I don't want to, I don't want uh, the teleprompter. So they're nervous about it. And there are a couple people, Ed Gillespie, Kevin Madden, whose attitude was, this is insane. Do, you cannot let anybody get out on stage in the, the, in, the bro, in the prime time broadcast hour on the final night of the convention, the most watched hour, the last hour we have under our control. You can't let anybody get up there without a script, but they were at a place where it was like he's an icon and he was being resistant. And who's going to tell him that he has to have a script? And there isn't a script written. And so people just sort of made the assumption, look, he's Clint Eastwood. He's given a lot of speeches before. He's been on stage at the Academy Awards. He'll be fine. It'll all just be fine. But they had no idea what was actually going on in Eastwood's head, which was... He didn't want to go out there and just give a speech talking about how great Mitt Romney was because that's what everybody else was doing. And so backstage at the convention, he's watching as he's about to go out there. He's watching all these other people singing Mitt Romney's praises. And he's thinking, I don't want to be just like everybody else. They all know I like Mitt Romney. Let's do something different. And he suddenly looks at a stagehand and says, why don't you put a chair out there? You know, literally three minutes before he's supposed to get out on stage. And it was all kind of on the fly. And no one in Romney world knew it was going to happen. Um, Clint Eastwood didn't know it was going to happen until the moment that he asked for that chair. And then you got him out there doing this thing that was like this kind of weird combination of a Bob Newhart homage and da-da dinner theater that turned out to be a complete disaster from the standpoint of the Romney campaign and their ability to get across the message they wanted to get across in that last big hour of the Republican convention. And Josh King, an advanced man for life, is just shaking his head in disbelief. Well, you know, they're called conventions for a reason because the script calls for them to be conventional. And it should be the most produced hour of television a party can muster because, as John just said, it's the one frickin' hour that you have in your control. You can have the spouse give an, an introduction or a cousin like Olympia Dukakis did. You could play the beautiful video. This is the one time a network will actually give you the video right. on, on camera. And, you know, they were and they were horrified by it. And, you know, they kept they told people publicly, they kept saying, oh, it's no big deal, no big deal. But while it was happening, Stuart Stevens is throwing, throwing up, up backstage. Rush Reefer is racing through the hall trying to get up there. Where, you know, Eastwood had said in a very kind of show busy way beforehand, he said, you know, you want me out there for, for four to five minutes. Now, you mean four to five minutes of talking or four to five minutes off and on the stage. So they were, you know, well, he understands how important it is that he get that he do this right to time. And then he ended up talking for 12 minutes, causing them to shorten Marco Rubio's speech, the one speech between Eastwood and, and, and Romney's speech. And of course, they all recognized 
uh, much though they denied it, that this would dominate the news the next day and that no one would hear what Romney had to say, that Romney's speech would be completely forgotten and that on, on front pages across the country, people would be focused on Clint Eastwood in the empty chair. And that's exactly what happened. Romney was very upset. Romney's family was very upset. They all saw that the magnitude of it. It seems like a small thing, but the truth is it was a big deal because really no one can remember a word of Mitt Romney's speech. And what everybody remembers from that night was the bizarreness of the Eastwood performance. Well, John Heilman, you know, so many people started to love your book Game Change after reading it, but even more uh, bought into it after they saw uh, the way Danny Strong converted into a script for HBO. One would hope that Clint Eastwood might be enticed to play Clint Eastwood in Game Change 2012 for HBO. Uh, let's just hear a little bit of the first movie, and then I want to hear sort of what's the process now by of turning this into another potential project for HBO. If he heals a sick baby, we're really f***ed. We're down by 15. If his convention speech is as good as that... It'll be better. Then we'll be trailing by 20 going into St. Paul. It's an uphill battle, John. Well, as Chairman Mao was fond of saying, it's always darkest before it's completely black. Senator, it always concerns me when you quote Chairman Mao. This guy is raising money like he's some sort of a human ATM machine. John, if there ever was a time to run a river and ride at, this is that time. Absolutely not. I agree. There's footage of his own reverence saying, God damn America. It's the single best weapon we've got. I want to run a f***ing campaign that my kids can be proud of, and that precludes attacking a black reverend. John Heilman, where does HBO take this from here? Are you ready to go with them, and is Danny on board? Uh, you know, we're all uh, we're all uh, all synced up. You know, HBO bought the the option for the for, for the, on this book. Um, they, you know, were very happy with how the first movie came out. We were really happy with how the first movie came out. It obviously won a lot of awards, and, and, and a lot of people said very nice things about it. It really is a testament to, not just to Danny, of course, who wrote that screenplay, which was brilliant, but also to Jay Roach, the director of the movie, um, the incredible cast that HBO put together. They are an incredibly high-class outfit, um, and they did, you know, really write by us and write by the book in the first instance. You know, it's very early. You know, they, Danny and Jay both have a lot of things going on. Uh, they Hunger have, Games a little bit. They, they now have copies of the book and, and they're reading it and, and hopefully they'll see a movie in it. Um, we think there's a few possibilities of things you might want to do with that. But ultimately, one thing that's true about Mark and I is that we are not uh, we are not in the movie business. Um, and we hope that, you know, those guys with all their genius will be able to see the outlines of something you could actually get up there on the screen in two hours and have it make sense. But you look dashing in a tuxedo at the Golden Globes. Well, um, you know, um, I try to clean up as best I can. So John Heilman, author of with Mark Halpern of Game Change 2012, uh, you will take a much-deserved break as you begin to think about Game Change 2016. And thanks so much for coming back on the program. Thanks for having us, guys. Polyoptics vote Eastwood as Eastwood. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124. Now, as you recall from a few weeks ago, I don't usually mix business with pleasure, pleasure being this show. But the two have collided in an interesting way this year in the person of one young man, Parker Leoto, who came to us about eight months ago seeking sponsorship to become the youngest man ever to walk to both the North and South Poles and to become the fastest ever to make it from coast to pole, unsupported and on foot, 400 miles across the frozen tundra of Antarctica. Thus, the Willis Resilience Expedition was born, scientific research to aid in the understanding of the planet's resilience, and a race to the South Pole to test the limits of human resilience. First, let me play a clip from that conversation back in Iceland. This expedition, which was kind of a, a dream from a very young age that, that wasn't really realistic until very recently, um, 
was a very big step up. Uh, an expedition to the South Pole from the coast is a much bigger uh, expedition than any other that I've done before. And it was, I think, the next, the important next step um, for what I wanted to do uh, and for the message that, that we wanted to, to sort of perpetuate. When Parker came to us last spring, the first question I asked him was, why the hell do you want to do this? His answer was striking. He said that his generation, remember, he's 19, isn't talking enough about climate-related issues. After all, policies often follow popular discourse, and Parker wanted to spark a new dialogue on the topic. And spark a dialogue he did. Here's part of his conversation earlier this fall with former Vice President Al Gore. I think the most effective method of communicating the importance of these changes for me has been a personal story, a story that people can relate to emotionally. Mm. And I think that actually technology gives us a method to do this when we're communicating from the most remote regions on the planet. And what I see in the theme of this session, 2030 now, uh, and the summit, I am very hopeful for the future in that I truly believe that my generation and your generation will find the strength to come together and the courage to stand up for science and the resilience to take on an extremely ambitious challenge, uh, what Congressman Gephardt yesterday described as the the toughest political challenge uh, in the history of humankind, to create a world in which it is possible for our children to dream of walking to the North Pole. And it's safe for our children to, for instance, live in a coastal city. So away they went, Parker and his guide, Doug Staup, an ambitious goal and a dangerous one. If we were going to back him, we also needed to ensure his safety. So we rigged up a custom-made Toyota Hilux 6x6, capable of navigating the worst conditions and surfaces Antarctica could serve up. It would be there just in case. And as long as it was there, why not rig it with an advanced Iridium satellite capability so that we could get high-definition video and live pictures for those following the expedition back home. Well, that's happened and more. Parker's been on live with CNN, CNBC, The Weather Channel, and ITV in the UK, and the footage that's come back has been the backbone of 16 live, one-hour resilience TV programs emanating each weekday morning from our building in London. They tackle the range of issues related to resilience and are certainly worth looking at, taking a look at at www.willisresilience.com. So in these final days, how is Parker doing? The race phase of his journey started on Friday, December 6th, and he and Doug have been managing a pace of approximately, oh, 16 nautical miles per day, all on foot, often in whiteout conditions. I got to tell you, it started out well enough. The first days brought beautiful weather, but then... As they said on Gilligan's Island, the weather started getting rough and the tiny expedition was tossed. Parker suffered a range of maladies that really threatened to scuttle the trek. Listen closely to one of the reports he sent back. He's in his tent at the end of a long 11-hour skiing trip, and he's huddling in his sleeping bag. He's literally shivering with with cold. The the steam is coming out of his mouth, and you got to listen closely, but here is a person really tested to the limits of their physical capability. I barely see anything because of the whiteout. But uh, I managed to find this flat patch, but there's just nowhere where there's any snow. It's all very icy and 
only have uh, wooden tent pegs. Um, so, real challenge to, to set up the tent. Man, started off as a fairly uneventful day. It took a lot of, for me, a lot of mental strength. Um, mentally, it took a lot out of me to finish this day and do it right. Uh, because the wind really does just take a lot out of you. Well, Parker and Doug have got past it, and they're on the home stretch. I'm really happy to tell you. As you sit back in the warmth of your hearth during this holiday weekend and into Christmas Eve, stay tuned to the website and Twitter to see if Parker can reach his goal. They've got about 100 miles to go uh, as we go on the air on Saturday. They're going to do about 17 miles a day. And if all goes according to plan, they should reach the South Pole sometime late on Christmas Eve. And you can follow it all on Twitter at Willis South Pole. And we'll try and get Parker on on the show in January to recap his trip. So that wraps up another program. Happy holidays to all of our loyal listeners. We appreciate so much the time you spent with us this year. For Jeff Smith, our other guest host, Matt Bennett, and me, Josh King, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again in 2014.